Why do we cry? How come love hurts? And what's a happiness researcher doing talking about sadness anyway? My name's Helen Russell. I'm an author, journalist and happiness researcher. And How to Be Sad is a podcast based on my book of the same name, exploring why we get sad, what to do when we're sad, and how we can all get happier by learning to be sad better. In this podcast, I'll be talking to people from all walks of life, and each episode I'll be joined by a special guest sharing their own story. Welcome to How to Be Sad. Daisy Buchanan is an award-winning journalist, chart-topping podcaster, author of How to Be a Grown-Up, The Sisterhood, and her latest Insatiable. As well as being one of the funniest women in print, Daisy has also written incredibly movingly about her own experiences, with anxiety, with disordered eating, about her relationship with her body after abuse, as well as many of the agonies of modern life that too often go unexamined or are met only with shame. Daisy is very good on shaking off shame and how to be sad well. She says of sadness now, the worst thing you can do is distract yourself from it. A lot like thrush. On that note, Daisy Buchanan, thank you so much for joining me. So how is post-lockdown life treating you? Well, I've not spoken about this before and I'm going to be candid. An odd thing has happened. Two odd things have happened. And in general, I had a very, I think, fortunate lockdown period I think that very little aspects of my life really changed I don't have children I live with my husband we both work from home we're both writers lockdown it could have been any day in 2019 you know normally I sort of go to London a couple of times a week I live in Margate by the sea but lockdown was just like a quiet day in the week but all year the first odd thing to happen was I've had my first vaccine and I discovered I am eligible for this vaccine because I have epilepsy. I was diagnosed with photosensitive epilepsy as a student. I had a seizure during a drum and bass night that my friend forced me to come to while everyone else was away. And it was quite clearly strobe related. The next seizure I had happened, I think about five years later, in a branch of Superdrug where the lights were a little flickery maybe, but it didn't seem to be as clearly linked to anything. I had, you know, the various MRIs and scans and they said, all we know is this is epilepsy. We know little about it. Medication that you can take is very, very strong. If you were having frequent episodes, we'd recommend that you take that, but otherwise we'd advise against it. I do have a family member who does have, I think, a more severe condition than mine and does take medication for it and I understand that medication to be intense and you know I'm I write and I'm very frightened that the impact on my brain would make that harder to do and then but yeah I was very surprised I was eligible for a vaccine I sort of took it gleefully and a little guiltily and I'm like I never think about having epilepsy this never comes up maybe I ought to sort of just get it checked out or have a look at you know when when we can make doctor's appointments again and everything is sort of a bit easier and straight more straightforward I will look into that and then I had a seizure in Morrison's last Friday completely unexpectedly and it's been a real you know I've, I've not really responded with the grace or fortitude or you know emotional strength that I I hoped I had it's made me aware that this sort of you know I'm making air quotes getting back to normal there are so many 
things I do to keep myself on an even keel. I've been delighted to get back into the gym. You know, I'm really fortunate in that, you know, I love the work I do and my work means a lot to me. But I'm really, really, really bad at stopping and taking a minute and saying I am vulnerable and terrified and I have no idea what to do or how to do next. I am no cousin Helen. I don't know if you're familiar with what Katie did, but, you know, a dreadful invalid. For the most part, everyone has been really, really kind to me. Um, I've been very looked after by my husband, by my friends and family. I have failed to be able to see a, a GP. That system down here is don't let us get sick as the song goes. But my acupuncturist and my therapist and my dentist have been lovely. And if that's not an indicator of privilege, I don't know what is. It's a strange state of affairs when you have to hope for the kindness of your dentist to cope with something that you'd hope a GP might be able to see you for. I'm so sorry, Daisy. So has that left you feeling vulnerable? It really, really has. And I mean, as you know, with anxiety, something I'm you know constantly working on, and it's a conversation I have with my therapist, who I have been seeing my therapist for, oh gosh, it must be six years now. And, you know, I think she's wonderful. Some might say like, well, you know, still seeing her after six years, you can't be that good. But I really, really appreciate having a kind of a vault, a space where I can, you know, say things and think things and things that might be, you know, for people who I'm close to. For example, not that this necessarily comes up, but if, you know, there was something in my marriage that I would, you know, to be unhappy about or complain about and you know, if I were to sort of to share that with a friend, and I think it's really important to share that with a friend, but then, you know, there's always the risk that the friend would sort of, when, you know, would would bear that sort of prejudice forever. But to have all, you know, even things that I want to kind of complain about to my husband, you don't want to be a, a broken record. It is that a place to kind of emotionally spread out, I think, is the, the value of therapy. And I'm really, really lucky to be in a position to to pay for it because it, it's expensive. It should be available to everyone who wants it. I think it's something that everyone will benefit from at some point. But, you know, yeah, something that Catherine often tells me is I don't have the copyright on uncertainty. That is being a human, being a person in the world, being alive is nobody knows what is going to happen. And, you know, that's good and exciting and wonderful. And that's how we want it. But there are periods where that feels like more of a problem than it does during other times. And right now, it's almost a collective experience, isn't it? That uncertainty, because none of us know what will happen. But for you, having just experienced an episode of epilepsy when it hadn't been at the forefront of your mind, I can imagine the uncertainty must feel greater still. I think that's absolutely it. That, you know, the one reading is sort of, well, if you're going evidence-based, there was a, a gap of over 10 years between these incidents. So does that mean I can, you know, the gap its twice as long as the previous gap? Does the maths hold up? Or does this mean I'm going to, is this going to be every day or every week or... Oh, Daisy, and I wonder, having mentioned how talking therapy is so valuable for you, about your experiences growing up in a big family. Is talking something that comes naturally? Was there a lot of talking growing up? Tell me all about your sisters, please. Uh, So I am the eldest of six. We're all girls and there's not much space between us. We were all brought up in a, you know, just really, really, really close together, sort of in a jumble. Like, you know, when I think of us, I sort of think of a, a basket of puppies and it was... I think that we all 
felt sort of that it was us against the world, but also we were very turn against each other quite quickly. It was all quite volatile and intense. I think my experience of sisterhood was it's not, it's something that you sort of, you feel in, or I felt in my heart and my gut before I felt it anywhere else. And definitely growing up, I've just been rereading uh, The Pursuit of Love by Nancy Mitford ahead of the TV adaptation. And I've been writing about it. And there's an amazing line where as Fanny, Nancy Mitford writes something about, you know, the least imaginative child imagines themselves to be like a, a changeling or a, a secret Indian princess or something like that. And I think that we all had that, like, you know, these people are all strange and loud and weird. And maybe I'm, you know, adopted and sort of, I should be in some kind of rarefied world where I'm not surrounded by these people who are constantly farting and being sick in the car. <laughs> um, but then, you know, we go out and I think that the bliss of growing up sisterhood for me has been that we, I think we're closer as adults than we ever were. It's when I was sort of, we were forced to be so close together and so sort of constantly near each other. And I think that maybe we all have a, a better understanding than, you know, you might do if you've not grown up with sort of that many family members close by, that sometimes all it takes for anyone to be irritating is for them to just be around constantly with you, near you, all the time. And that's something that we've all learned over the last year. And I'd like to think that because of that, we are possibly a little bit better at noticing that and, you know, giving people a bit of room when they need room. Maybe not. Maybe that's just something I'd like to have got out of the experience. Yeah, I wonder whether then periods of your life when before you got married and when you were single, I wonder, did you have periods where you lived alone? And was that strange having been around other people siblings for for so much of your life actually I think I found so I, I nearly always had housemates and things and I think I really loved sort of being alone and now when I think about it I think oh I, I do remember sort of there'd be some times with housemates where it would get sort of quite intense and they I don't know if they would imagine like, oh, you know, you've got lots of sisters. I always wanted to have sisters. You can, you know, be my surrogate sister. It'll sort of make this intimacy happen. And I think actually all my sisters have had this sort of like, no, I don't know what you look at me and want to, I don't know, climb on my back or whatever it is. They'll be like, let's share a bed. I'm like, no, I, I want my own space. I want to be on my own. I want you to go away. That's so interesting. So they assume a shortcut to intimacy because they think that that's what you are used to. Wow. Yeah. You know, I think because... We know that sort of alone time is, is a rare and precious thing. You know, we're quite, you know, keen to guard it. I think I've read you you say that there was a lot of ignoring feelings and, and that had an impact on perhaps how your parents approached emotions and sadness, since this is a podcast about how to be sad. I wonder what impact that had, do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think that it was all you know, almost sort of military. And I don't know if that's to do with it. It's a generational thing. It's sort of the volume of, of children you are you are dealing with. And I suppose as well that, you know, sadness, unless you're sort of acting out on it. I don't know. I mean, I had a really, you know, grim time at school from a, a young age. I was, you know, bullied quite violently. And I suppose it was tricky because, you know, and I, I know that that made dad especially very very sad and very very angry I think because my mum had had a not a, a good time at school and perhaps was more of the view that you know well you, the happiest days of your life but they're all so dreadful just you know get your head down and and get through it I think the sort of 
what was practically necessary to kind of keep us, you know, going and clean. I mean, I now, you know, I think about parents and I, it's the, the cliche is true. I honestly don't know how you do it, how you help someone navigate the endless sort of minefields of childhood. Yes, but I mean, the one thing I did have, it was, I read a lot. I was read to a lot. There were lots and lots and lots of books around. And I think that was a huge, huge comfort to me and also I think it did give me an incorrect sense of hope um one of my favorite books was A Little Princess by Frances Hodgson Burnett and I don't know how familiar you are I know I know you're supposed to like um is it Mary in the Secret Garden Mary yes yes and she's you know sort of bad tempered and rude in a nightmare and she's the much cooler one to like but Sarah is very like almost kind of gratingly sweet and noble and good and very sort of cousin Helenish, I suppose but when you know there's a reversal of fortunes you know she's there and she's very grand and very gracious and very generous and sort of you know it's very responsible with her wealth and her privilege then disaster strikes uh, spoiler alert her father is presumed dead there are no diamond mines she is forced to work at the school and be a scullery maid to kind of to earn her keeping because she is very well spoken and mallard and miss Minchin, the evil proprietress and sort of put her to good use um and i think often about the part where she befriends becky the actual scullery maid and talks about the sort of notion of you know it's nothing but an accident of birth that i grew up with what i grew up with and you have had to you know work for a living since you're about 12 you know it's not she that that was the first time i think i sort of saw like there's no there's no moral justice in that sense that no one is, no one gets what they deserve at all. It's all kind of entirely random. You've just really got a responsibility if you've got anything that you can share to share it. And what sort of age were you reading this at? That, that's I'm thinking that's a big lesson. If you're being bullied at school and you're having a grim time, and there is escape in these heroines, who it, that's interesting to me that they are so easily called to mind. How how early is this that you are able to make these connections and decide, okay, the world could be unfair. What are we going to do about it? I think I was about seven or eight. And I was just a big dreamer to the point of being delusional. You know, just to be aware there were sort of other worlds and other other realities and that you could make sense of a world in a book in a way that maybe you couldn't in real life. And, you know, it was just a real prompt to kind of sort of to start imagining things and and keep imagining things and also I suppose I didn't think of it in those terms then but this idea of kind of controlling a narrative it's you know what Nora Ephron would teach me years and years later as everyone talked once you own your story it is yours and it it belongs to you and and I think that's something that my mum would make a joke out of and sort of say, you know, it's all material. In fact, years later, when I got fired from my first job, my manager, who sort of fired me, said, you know, well, it's one for your memoirs. And I laughed and, you know, sort of went, well, I I think I kind of tried to stop crying. But in my head, I was thinking, don't be so ridiculous. Even I know that's grandiose and mad. (laughs) And here you are. (laughs) And you have written so, so powerfully about your experiences and I guess owning the narrative and as a fellow writer I know it can be very different writing about something to speaking about it but if you are comfortable talking about the impact 
that abuse had on you at an early age. I think that's that's very helpful. I hear a lot from from listeners who have been through some some fairly traumatic things, and just to know that there is, I guess, a life beyond that that is that is a good life is very helpful. I mean, I think it's so surprisingly common, and that's why it is so important for it to happen. It was um, weirdly sort of textbook doesn't sound quite right, but it was um, it was a a neighbour, a very sort of you know sweet seeming old man who saw my you know harassed mother with many many children to look after and sort of you know volunteered to babysit and sort of you know watch me after school and it was such a weird it was the very early 90s and I think before and it's weird because I remember later this like mad like not mad at all entirely sane but like a tabloid like moral panic about paedophiles like years after it happened there always seemed to be something about you know you see all the red tops in the supermarket and be like, pedophiles, watch out. And I'd never really sort of made that connection until a long time later. So, and I mean, he did the obvious, obvious grooming thing about, you know, sort of saying it was a, a secret in between us and not to tell anyone. And he gave me quite a lot of his dead wife's stuff, which was strange. And uh, the weird, I mean, because I remember then, like one of the first things I learned before I could talk was like, someone gives you a present, you say thank you. Even if you do not want the present, <laughs> even if there's, you can do nothing with it and you really, really, really don't want you to, he's like, oh, that's really kind. Thank you very much. That is what you do. And so, so much, and my mum even said to me later that she wishes that she taught all of us to kind of be less polite. And obviously that was a, a really you know dark and awful example of it and it happened when I was about five we just moved to a new town I was at a new school and I'd gone from you know just being very sort of just this you know cheerful bumbling four-year-old he wasn't really conscious of just everything was just fine and then suddenly the school was bigger I was being bullied I was you know being abused but the way it all kind of came at once it did sort of seem, I didn't then have the faculties, I guess, to step back and think, well, none of this is right. This shouldn't be happening. I was like, oh God, this is probably just what occurs. <laughs> this, this is moving house. Oh, um, Gosh. But, you know, late, I remember one of my sisters coming home in tears, this sort of really, again, a, an older pervy man being, you know, at a sitting down beside her while she's waiting for a train and, you know, initially sort of saying, like, do you have the time or nice day, isn't it? And then, and it's sort of, I think, really taking advantage of the fact that she was of an age where she hadn't been raised to tell people like that to fuck off, which is what we must tell our, tell our girls, tell our children, tell everyone to fuck off. Um, <laughs> I've made up for that now. But I suppose with that abuse happening so early there were definitely other times in my life where it was much sort of say subtle where it would be you know someone I knew would do something inappropriate and it would all sort of become get that first instance of it happening I think really broke my ability to see it for what it was and I think doing that sort of the way we blame ourselves right down to um a few years ago, I was assaulted on a press trip and somebody worked in the resort that was able to use a key to enter my room. There'd been a big party 
the evening before in a big sort of like multi-course dinner as you know you know with press trips sort of open bar I had so much to drink I was really really drunk and actually in a way that was great because as soon as I was aware of someone touching me I woke up I was I you know I can't quite remember the science of like alcohol but either you have no REM sleep or only REM sleep so you're much you're a much lighter sleeper than you otherwise would be and I was aware of it so soon enough the kind of the the touching to be minimal oh god but Helen the the shame of that and you know the next day we're luckily with the support of other people there and fortunately there was you know they had the technology to work out sort of you know when this person came in and how long they came in and what but I was you know I think because you know my first first thought was this is because I'm I was drinking and I'm a bad person and I've ruined my marriage and I've done this awful awful thing and you know because that's what that's what we tell women Uh, Daisy I'm so sorry and and even knowing all that you know intellectually still that sort of I guess that conditioning is there for you to have that response oh god my goodness like now it was so weird so weird because I remember all day long not knowing what had happened and being so frightened and freaked out and ashamed not quite knowing how to ask for help because not thinking that maybe I deserved it which is you know for any for anyone any other woman this had happened any other person this had happened to of course, I would never want anyone to feel those emotions I had felt. And as you said, and this is, you know, me, I, at that time, I had a lot of therapy. I, you know, written and read as extensively as I was able to about feminism and about sexual assault. And I'd written about my own experiences and worked through them. And even with all of that training, I guess, behind me. And I, I remember, and it was so, so bizarre. I just remember being you know, waiting, waiting, waiting. I had a massage at the resort. I shouldn't have gone and done it, but because my brain was just so sort of, oh, well, I, I can't possibly cancel the massage. That'll really put them out. So I, um, you know, went anyway. And I, it was weirdly as well, like the day before my period was going to start and I'd sort of lost track of that a bit. And I felt, you know, pains, I guess, my womb is that right in my sort of in my abdomen abdomen but you know I feared and assumed the worst to feel that sort of tenderness in a in a tender place and the sort of and you know it was after that like the big reveal and I remember saying well we've got we've been able to find the records and look and this is what happened and this is when the person came into the room and and it almost felt like I'd sort of I'd won a game show after you know, a weirdly like perilous task. And uh, my initial was just the sort of, oh, I don't know, like Hester Prynne being able to give up her A or something. I was so like the relief, the, the coursing, coursing relief and giddiness. And it was almost only because I left the resort sort of straight away. And it was only on the plane home where I kind of went, hold on a minute. <laughs> the issue is not that and I think we sort of still, and I, I'm probably still using language to kind of talk about that as a, you know, a rare thing and a not exactly a, a tragic thing, but something in that family. And, you know, the truth is that's happening to people every day. And by, I don't know, as you say, intellectually, I know that was 
a dreadful thing to happen that shouldn't happen to anyone under any circumstances had i been you know had tequila shots and been like naked on a deck I'm like, Hi! that's still no excuse for what happened but because we i think collectively you know we really struggle I and mean, i think things like you know me too we still we we are not in a post me too world and I get what the details we fixate on are the ones that look sort of familiar to and again you know it's ironically or not it's sort of you know cinematic isn't it you know an obvious baddie doing an obviously bad thing to a a beautiful sort of heroin victim well oh how dreadful how awful that one person must be stopped and it's not one person it's cultural and it's endemic and I don't think we've really fully got to grips with the impact in terms of sort of mental health on the fact that countless people have been you know sexually and violently assaulted and sort of live with it every single day and then have to kind of keep on existing in this climate where it's constantly in the news and there's nowhere to hide nowhere to stop being reminded and I think people are so scathing about you know the notion of a a trigger warning and oh you know being triggered at such a an awful kind of there are certain parties that I prefer not to name who you know people who call people snowflakes and things but you know it's a triggering time being alive as anyone with any there's a really brilliant I've talked about it before I think it is in a Julian Barnes book I believe it might be Sense of an Ending Mm -hmm. and he puts it so beautifully and it's one sort of to be alive is to to survive trauma and inflict it on other people and that's just what we all what we all do but it's it's true there's no and I encouraged by you know the call for kindness and you know the call for empathy but I think we're so far from doing anything but kind of paying lip service to it so there's there's the structural things and there's the and there's the systematic problem that we need to fight for but how do we how do we do the going on bit? I mean, how do we carry on with that kindness? I, I'm very interested in in the things you've written about, about, for example, learning to reconnect with your body and to love your body again and and to trust and to enter in relationships and find love. How, how did that work for you? How were you able to rebuild in that way? Well, maybe this, uh, this applies to the body and maybe it applies to everything that to love your body is, that's quite an ask. Even if you, one is a, a fortunate person who's never felt any body shame or awkwardness or, you know, had any sort of directly bad experiences, we, the Western world, the messages we hear, it's like your body is wrong and you treat it incorrectly and this is how you can improve upon it. And then that sudden, oh, but have you thought about loving it? <laughs> You've not given me any tool. You've not given me anything. And so the, to just be neutral and to to accept that, that we have bodies, that we're not, you know, brains in jars. Yeah, I have I have heard you say that before, that, that the loving it feels like a big ask. I suppose I have small children who are still, thank goodness, at the stage where they totally are, adore their bodies. So I guess part of me is... I, I feel conscious that it is possible and that we are unlearning that. I mean, they love them. They luxuriate in them. And it's such a joy to see. I want that. 
My nephew is such a fan of his own willy. It's so, but the just the absolute lack of self consciousness is a joy. And my niece, I bet she's got fabulous sort of big curly hair, and she is very very beautiful. But she is she's being admired by some, I think, church ladies. And she said, you know, Mummy, I am very beautiful, aren't I? I'm like, yes, never. And I suppose that's the thing that we as children, if we said anything like that, you know, there'd be a generational wreck of like. No, suppress it. No, 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 that's not very nice. And actually, we are in a position to encourage. And I, I mean, I think it is by by doing and being active and being in it. And my body for sure brings me the most joy when I am moving. And in a way, I think, I mean, I'm so, so lucky to live by the sea. I'm not nearly as cool or hardcore as... Um, lots of the people who swim all year round. I have been in the sea one time at the end of March on the hot day. Running as well and running is something that I am very, very, very new to. I definitely have moments like everyone overtakes me and I do sometimes find it quite hard not to obsess about that and feel quite grumpy about it but the amount of joy it brings me, you know, what I get out of it versus what I have to bring into it is astonishing. I really love going for walks. I never thought, when I was a child, that was the most boring proposition in the world ever. Yeah, and dancing. Walking is the best thing for feeling sad. Oh yes, and dancing, when we can do that again somewhere with other people. I do miss dancing. And I've been, uh, actually, when when Apple brought out the AirPod, I was very sceptical and thought, this is stupid and I wouldn't know part of it this is a a con don't you can't have my money and they're brilliant they're really really you know other things are available but the wirelessness which means I can dance while I dry my hair that feels like a revelation oh that's good okay that's a good a good luxury a good treat to be able to use your body in that way and I think that's the other thing is sort of realizing now being of an age where every so often I'll do something to my back nothing has made me love my body more than a period of having a bad back and then it miraculously pops back or and it does it sometimes it can just be like brushing my teeth or just turning a little bit too quickly and it doesn't like it at all but you know that I've got my um my knee was very sore and it's not sore at the moment and I can just get up off the sofa without having to make a noise. I love my body. I love it so much. Well, that's so good. I, I like the quote that you, you said once about um, when someone sees you naked for the first time, they should react like they're on Oprah and they've just won a car. I love that line. I think that's great. That's what we it's aim for. It's true. And that's something I forget about. You know, I think even now on a low day, I've watched Love Island and, you know, all the reality TV and the sort of sometimes thinking, God, I wish I was you know, more glamorous and shall I get rest alone and why is there so much hair on my chin and, you know, I'll never have abs and it's too late. And then I thought, well, who do I fancy? I think of all the people I fancy. None of them are Love Islandy people. Yeah, that's true. And I would love to talk to you about Insatiable, about your new novel. And it's very sexy. And I can't quite say that word with a straight face. But... <laughs> You know, about a girl who gave herself permission to lose herself to desire feels, again, monumental and quite structurally challenging because so much, as we've talked about, prevents women from doing this and how not to live in fear. I wonder how you got to this place to be able to write 
quite so candidly about sex. Well, I mean, it's funny now talking about, you know, because obviously I wrote it sort of before the pandemic and, you know, when the book came out, and it's like, so, tell us about your sexy sex book. And I'm like, I'm wearing a combination of brown and grey blankets and um, I've not seen my own nipple for some time. I think I've heard of sex, but I'm very cold. <laughs> Can we just... But no, it comes back, I think, to the books I love. I'm a huge, huge Jilly Cooper fan. I love Jackie Collins, Valley of the Dolls. Any book with a sexy bitch in it. And actually, that is how I think if I'd not had that growing up, sex would have just been a, a frightening thing that I'd want to sort of hide from. But, I think, you know, all of my good first experiences, just, you know, me and a book. And books are so, are such a sort of, a generous space but that you can make the sex into whatever you need it to be for you and how you can you can imagine how something will feel and I think that you know even because I didn't really see any porn growing up not for a lack of curiosity or enthusiasm <laughs> but because of um technology mostly but you know it was always more it was just something softer and more yielding about, we don't really want soft, do you? Lol. But they're having um, fun. Sorry. I think that's it. In, in Julie Cooper, they're having a nice time and you don't see or, or you read that very often. People pun while they're having sex. And it's nice because it doesn't have dramatic major consequences. It's just a sort of, you know, well, that would be nice, wouldn't it? If we just sort of, you know, went off to bed and no one is, it doesn't seem to kind of define anyone really it's just something you know that's sort of that's done with great enthusiasm and I suppose having loved that so much as a reader I wanted to see if I could recreate it as a writer and definitely when I wrote Insatiable I mean I wish I'd had the adventures that Viola has had I have not. So you are happily married? <laughs> well I don't think I could have written about orgies if I'd been to orgies I think that it probably if I'm really honest, I imagine, and I'm sure some are glorious and wonderful and people have an excellent time, but I can imagine it being a bit awkward and disappointing and maybe not sexy. Or, you know, not everyone there will be sexy. Or I often think there was an episode of The O.C., of all things, where um, Sandy and Kirsten go to like a partner-swapping New Year's party. I will be Googling this immediately. <laughs> But there's a woman who, you know, is sort of very excited. Like, this party saves, saved my marriage. And then she's paired up with this sort of an unappealing fellow. And she's sort of says, oh, well, oh my God, it's real. It's all really, really bleak. And I imagine there's a shade of that. And so this was, yeah, just really, it started out a space for me to just fantasise and have fun and think, this is, I don't want to make an accurate sexual record. Again, you know, like when I was reading and dreaming, you know, when I was younger, if I could be in this position without any consequence. Because as well, in Insatiable, Violet, I think, feels powerless and gives a lot of power away. And it's always, I'm still honestly undecided as to whether, I think she is certainly emotionally exploited. Sexually, I think she is and she isn't. You know, I think she's really sort of willing and enthusiastic, but also she doesn't have the confidence or the, I don't know, even the knowledge to kind of, you know, go out and say, right, I want to go to an orgy. I'm going to find one. She's waiting. She wants someone to push her down the rabbit hole. She's not looking for the rabbit holes. And I think that's it. There are definitely, you know, sexually, I think of 
you almost feel like you have to wait to be asked. And that's difficult for women, I think. We still sort of perpetuate this myth that it is a very, you know, the sort of, it's a very heteronormative idea too, I think, that as women, we must be desired before we desire. And again, it's a bit like, you know, loving your body. You're like, well, no, you should be forthright and express your desire and like have sexual confidence but you can't just have sexual confidence in that way when you're told and hinted to that a big part of being a woman is being to feel sexy the sexiness must be in the eye of the beholder I know that's not true but I think we're made to feel that it is yeah that's depressing yes sorry (laughs) no no you're right though yeah this demure idea persists I think thinking about escapism and you're very good on money in the novel and Violet she she ponders at one point I worked so hard to find a job in my dream industry and it made me miserable and broke an unwelcome little voice pipes up if you'd been working in banking you might have been miserable but you wouldn't be broke and that rang all of the bells for me I mean that just feels yeah like finances you're very good at writing about that as well and the sleepless nights that lack of financial literacy give many of us and especially women I think are still often not um, encouraged to take control over finances in a way that would help them not to be sad oh good I mean like now I am in a much stronger and happier and safer position than I was also now I waste so much more money when I was really 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 broke you know I was so scared and I just and again it's so much sort of blaming of myself I was just kept being like well I thought I was cleverer than this I don't understand I must be very stupid if I can't get this right when actually I think so much of it was connected with the fact that I was so ambitious and passionate ironically it was the ambition that made me so much easier to exploit and I think that's so true of so especially in in our industry but you know this this notion of millions of girls that they're sort of you are you work and work and work and work to prove that you're you know not so easily replaceable and that sort of you know you're you're lucky to be in the room I don't know and I, I don't ever want to forget that you know that the fear of it and the dread of it and also you know the anxiety it's impossible to make good sensible long-term decisions when you're really really anxious when because I think that was the the thing that bothered me the most was that feeling I couldn't plan it for the future and I you know I wanted to I wanted sort of the the option of it but and just the the conversations about money seemed to be so and it's still you know something that bothers me now it's either have you thought about giving up coffee and avocados or oh well you know that your ISA allowance is like what 25 grand that spare 25,000 pounds that everyone's talking about oh great thanks thanks for that um I'm in the throes of trying to buy uh, my first home at the moment and I was just saying to my husband actually it's funny all these years I didn't do it because I was so frightened that I was you know, not responsible enough, no one would lend me money and everyone would shout at me and I was a, you know, dismal, pathetic failure. Incompetency abounds. Everyone, nearly. Uh, we have a truly, truly lovely, brilliant, amazing mortgage broker. Everyone else is awful. <laughs> and I think it's been quite weirdly stressful. There are lots of scary things about money that I thought I'd sort of, I dealt with that are bubbling up. 
you know, things I know not to be true, something I think about constantly. Because in an interview, J.K. Rowling said when she was pregnant with her second child, she was absolutely overwhelmed with financial fear and was really, really scared about money and being broken, being homeless and losing everything. And at the time, she was a, a multimillionaire. But because she had been so in such dire straits the first time she was pregnant, and the physically, the experience triggered all of those matching memories which I think is fascinating yes that the body remembers yeah Mm. yes oh my goodness I wish you every success with that that's exciting I could talk to you for hours but I would love to end by asking I ask all my guests what do you know now that you've with all that you've experienced what advice would you give your 21 year old self about how to be sad well I do love that question and I think Oh, and it's annoying because I still need the advice now. <laughs> time. Take your time. You will not be sad forever. And I think that so often it's not the sadness that is bothersome or difficult. It's the fear of being sad. We fear feelings and push them away. And all of the difficult and negative things that arise, I don't think they are. They're not the, the sadness or the anger or the all the frustration, it's that little gap of trying to shove the feeling away. So to just lean in and just to have, you know, faith and trust that it will, it will end when it needs to end. And it's, I often think it's revolting, but I think of, you know, squeezing spots (laughs) and you need to, you know, make sure everything is sort of suitably aired and it's better that it takes a week to heal and you have a week of it being a revolting mess on your chin then you keep sort of putting bits of makeup and it keeps getting dirty and keeps coming back and I wish I could think of something more elegant but yeah just <laughs> a wise analogy and not the answer I expected so thank you so much a pleasure to speak to you today um, and I look forward to seeing what you do next thank you so much Daisy Buchanan thank you so much for having me on your wonderful podcast it's such an honour to be a guest Thank you so much for joining me today. Please do rate, review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. It really does help others find us and helps us to make more episodes. You can find out more about How to Be Sad, the book and the podcast online at Ms. Helen Russell. And take care. <laughs>